many of you will know, of course, um, Steve is the senior pastor here at Oxford Community Church, and he's going to speak to us from our series on miracles. So, Steve, over to you. Good morning, everybody. Um, Just before we get going with looking at John's Gospel, we're looking at seven miracles in John's Gospel. Um, Just wanted to offer an encouragement for what will happen after the end of this morning's meeting. A couple of us, whilst praying this morning, um, felt quite independently God um, bring to mind that he wants to make connections between people here this morning. And it's, it's great that we're all gathered together and focused on the Lord, but there's something he wants to do of making connections between people and some chain reactions that will happen in relationships as he does that. And that may already have taken place in large measure as we were enjoying coffee and flapjack. It's good to have flapjack this morning. Thank you, Max, the chef here, for leaving that for us. Um, but I'd like to encourage you not to rush off at the end and just be open uh, to what God might want to do in relationships uh, once we've closed our times sort of all focused together. Um, but we are looking in John's Gospel at another one of the miracles that Jesus did. Actually, the, the passage is in John chapter 6. The bit that we're looking at this morning is nestled in between uh, bits that Caroline so uh, helpfully took us through last week. Last week, she spoke to us about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then jumped a few verses forward in John chapter 6 to where Jesus explains that it's not that bread really that matters, but that he's the bread of life. But in between those, we have Jesus walking on water. And that's what we're looking at this morning. And uh, I'm sure there's a PowerPoint Uh, which is just going to show you a picture of, of Jesus walking on, uh, on water. So that'll come up in a moment, but it will also have the verses up there. John chapter 6, we're going to start reading at verse 15, which just provides the immediate context. So if you have a Bible, please do open it to John chapter 6. I'm going to read from, verses, from verse 15 through to verse 29. This is just after Jesus has fed the 5,000, and it says, uh, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now, bear in mind, this is not the kind of lake that we have uh, in this part of the world. This is also called a sea, the Sea of Galilee. It's about 12 by 7 miles. So it, it was a big lake, and they're heading off across it, and it says that by now it was dark, And Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they'd rowed three or three and a half miles, so right in the middle of the lake, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then They were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus hadn't entered it with his disciples, but that they'd gone away alone. And then some boats came from Tiberias, uh, landed near the place where the people had eating the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into into those boats 
and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe in the one he has sent. Now, this story, this walking on water, is recorded in Matthew and Mark's Gospels as well. And Matthew's Gospel in particular adds in a few more details, which you may, you may have been expecting Peter to jump out of the boat, as I read it from John's Gospel. Actually, that's one of the things that's in Matthew's Gospel. There's a few details in Matthew's Gospel about this event that help us understand exactly what was going on. And God has graciously given us these different accounts that we can put together. You see, in John's Gospel, it it reads a bit like the disciples just got bored of waiting and left Jesus to sort himself out uh, without any mode of transportation. Whereas, in fact, Matthew's gospel tells us, it's there in Matthew chapter 14, that Jesus actively sent the disciples away to stay by himself dealing with the crowds. And these crowds weren't just, it wasn't just a whole load of people. This had become a tense and difficult political situation. They were intending to take Jesus by force and make him king. And Jesus and his disciples were in danger of being caught up against their will in a violent political movement that would lead to all kinds of trouble. And in that context, Jesus says to his disciples, look, you you get out of here. I'll stay. I'll deal with this. So it's a rather different thing to the disciples somehow getting bored whilst Jesus is praying. Matthew 14 also tells us that the disciples in the boat thought that Jesus was a ghost. So their experience is like, we're already in a storm, and oh my goodness, now we've got a ghost as well. And um, it does describe there how, brief, uh, how Peter briefly got out of the boat to walk on water, and also how the storm stopped as soon as Jesus got into the boat. John, in his gospel, leaves all of those details out. He keeps it simple. And the result of that in John's gospel is that it keeps the focus on Jesus alone. We don't hear about Peter. We're not told so much about the storms. We're not told so much about the crowds and what what, what they were doing. But the focus is on Jesus. And John is drawing our attention to this man, Jesus, the son of man, who's the focus of the story, and he's inviting us to ask the question, what do we make of Jesus? Not so much on the miracle or the outcomes or the people. What do we make of this man, Jesus? Who is he that even the storm obeys him? Well, I just want to draw out two very simple things that this passage says about Jesus. One of them is that Jesus is good. He is Good, really simple, but I hope before we finish this morning, 
you'll see or be reminded of just how important it is that we keep hold of the fact that God is indeed good. Jesus shows kindness with his disciples. He shows this selfless concern for the disciples faced with a crowd of thousands, some number of whom get violent and forceful. Jesus takes the burden of dealing with things upon himself and puts the disciples out of harm's way. It's a kindness that he exercises, and he does that because he's good. Uh, Also, it's amazing how his voice alone is enough to bring them peace. That's all it takes. That Seeing him, they can't make out who it is. As soon as they hear his voice, they know who it is, and that bring, they know now that Jesus is here, things are going to be okay because they know that he's good. So Jesus is good. This is not complex theology. Uh, he's also great, walking on water. Uh, the Jewish people were not a seafaring people like those who lived at Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenicians. They found the sea to be a fearful and chaotic thing that swallowed people up. And in common with others, like the Babylonians in that part of the world, they saw the seas and large lakes as a picture of untamed chaos that could just overtake your life. And here's Jesus walking on top of it, walking on the water. They would have clearly seen this as a picture of Jesus, not just walking on water, but this is God trampling on chaos. Whatever power seemed to be the greatest in the natural world and destructive power at that, Jesus is so great, he just walks on top of it. It's no trouble to him. And not only that, his greatness is also seen not only in his walking on water, but his bringing them swiftly to shore. I don't know if you noticed that. They, the lake's about seven miles wide. They've rowed three, three and a half miles. They're in the middle of the lake. As soon as he's in the boat, they're there. So something went on there. He's able not only to still the storm, but say, look, we've had enough of this. Let's just get to where we're going. He's great. He's powerful. This man, Jesus, who, who gets into the boat with the disciples, is both good and great. And what I felt I led to do this morning was to connect those two facts up, that Jesus is good and Jesus is great, with the greatest problem that we face in life. And the greatest problem that we face in life is, of course, sin. That's the biggest problem that we have. And uh, I, I'm going to draw on a book. I'm going to read it. I don't often do this. I'm going to read a chunk from a book um, by someone called Tim Chester, a book entitled You Can Change. And the reason I'm going to do this is he expresses something very clearly uh, better than I would do this morning. I'm just going to put up on here uh, a quote, well, a slightly altered version of words from what I'm about to read, but just to get this thought in mind, and I'm going to read a bit from Tim Chester's book, which will unpack this. He says this, spiritual growth consists of the progressive narrowing of the gap between the faith I confess and the faith I practice. Okay, 
Spiritual growth consists of the progressive narrowing of the gap between the faith I confess and the faith I practice. And that's because the faith that we confess, that which we read in the scriptures, that which we encourage one another in, together as the church, it come, that's the faith that we confess. We speak that out. We've, we've sung out our faith this morning, and we've prayed out our faith this morning. That's the faith that we confess. Our spiritual growth consists of what we actually do in our lives, catching up with that and connecting with it. So let me read what he has to say. He says this, we sin because we believe the lie that we're better off without God. This is true of every sin and every negative emotion. Often we can identify specific lies behind specific sinful acts and emotions. I may envy, steal, or be anxious about money because I believe that consumer goods give meaning to my life or because I believe that God doesn't care for me. I may commit adultery or get depressed about my singleness because I believe the lie that intimacy with another person will give me more than God can give me. Not many people think of themselves as someone who believes lies. But every time we don't trust God's word, we're believing something else, and that something is always a lie. If I get angry when I'm stuck in traffic, it's because I don't trust God. I believe the lie that God isn't in control or that his purposes for me are not good. If I overwork, it's because I don't trust God. Perhaps because I believe the lie that I need to prove or justify myself. Whenever we're depressed or bitter, it's because we believe God isn't being good to us. Not many Christians think of themselves as unbelievers. After all, we normally use that term to describe people who aren't Christians at all. The problem lies in the gap between what we believe in theory and what we believe in practice. On Sunday morning, I sing of my belief in justification by faith, the faith I confess, But on Monday morning, I still feel the need to prove myself. Or, I may believe I'll be acquitted on the day of judgment, but still want to justify myself in an argument tomorrow. I may affirm that God is sovereign, the faith I confess, but still get anxious when I can't control my life. Sanctification, he says, is the progressive narrowing of the gap between the faith I confess and the faith I practice. And recognizing that behind every sin is a lie points us to the road out of our sinful behavior and emotions. That road is to trust in God. 
Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18 says, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Proverbs describes the road of trust in God as like the first gleam of dawn. Maybe you feel as if you're in darkness, trapped in your behavior, with negative emotions weighing heavily upon you. And seeing them as symptoms of unbelief can be like the first gleam of dawn. Hope dawns with the realization that the answer is found in looking to God. It's a long road that takes a lifetime to travel, but with every step, the light of God's goodness shines ever brighter until the full light of day. Jeremiah uses a different picture. This is from Jeremiah 17. People who trust in their own strength are like barren trees in a desert. Maybe that's how you feel, as if you're running on empty, thirsty for something more. Life feels fruitless and pointless. God says that people who trust in him are like trees planted by water, which never fail to bear fruit. Now, that doesn't mean they have an easy life. The scorching heat comes on them, but their roots go down into the refreshing waters of God's word. Faith in God sustains them and keeps them fruitful in the midst of adversity. end of reading from his book, but it takes us back to the last verse that we read from John chapter 6. Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The task that Jesus gives to the people in this passage is trust me. Trust me. That's what belief means. Trust me. That's the task. That's the work that lies ahead of us. So let's return to these two aspects of God's nature that are seen in our passage this morning. What does it mean to believe in practice that God is good? I well remember, um, you know how some some church um, services stick in your memory? Some don't. One that sticks well in my memory from, it must be 20 years ago, and it must have been uh, an area celebration. That's what we call those things when people from right across the county get together. Because I was in the cinema on George Street, where we then held them, and I was right at the back, um, I'd come in up the fire escape, because there was no other way of getting into the, into the thing. And someone read... Psalm 27, which includes the words, I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord, not only after this life, but in the land of the living. And I I remember, you know, I trust that many of you, you you, hopefully all of you will know what this kind of experience is like. As that word of God came to me, a couple of things came clear to me in a moment. What it, it, 
I realized, like I never realized before, that I did not believe that. That I had not believed that. That I did not expect to see God's goodness in that way. And in the same moment, um, I realized that a miracle had occurred right there and then because I found that now I did believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. His word came to me, as it does so often, like a seed. It, it divided between soul and spirit. It showed up what was in me or what had not been in me, and it birthed faith and trust that I would see the goodness of God. I would. And my praying changed, and my expectations changed, and my choices began to change. The fact that God is good, a good father who gives good things, means very practically that I do not need to look elsewhere for my satisfaction. The woman at the well a few chapters earlier in John's gospel, in chapter four, had gone through five husbands and was then with another man, we presume, looking for meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction and pleasure. But those relationships were like water that still left her thirsty. Jesus said to her, whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst. Instead, it will become in that person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus invited her as he invites us to look to him for our longings to be met. Jesus is good. God is good. And he delights to give us good things, which means that life with God is the best life you can get. And he invites us to come and enjoy that. This means, very practically, I don't need more stuff to make me happy. I don't have to escape into a game world to feel excitement. It means that I don't rely on human relationships to bolster my sense of importance. It means, and I'm grateful for this, it means that I don't need a perfect body before I can enjoy life. It means I can live life full, not empty. And it means that I don't need a quick fix of the kind of happy chemicals that are released in our bodies from short-term pleasures. I don't need those things. I don't need to live in a way that depends on those things because God is good. God is good and he gives good gifts and he satisfies. There is pleasure in knowing God because God is good. And as the scripture says, taste and see. Taste and see. You can taste of God's goodness and find that he is good. God is good. The question is whether we only confess that faith or whether we're living in the good of that. And I want to be really clear. This is not a kind of, look, come on, everyone, you really should do this thing. Come on, sort yourselves out. You It's not a you must and that you should, but rather we get to live this life. 
we get to live receiving the goodness of God. It's an amazing opportunity. This is how we get to live. We get to live free from all kinds of anxieties and demands and addictions and so on because we have come to see that God is good. It frees us up. And we get to live just a really amazing life, the best kind of life, an abundant life in Christ. God is good. God also is great. Jesus is great. God is great. What does it mean to believe practically that God is great? To believe that he is powerful? To believe that he is in control? Well, it does mean much as Tim Chester said there, that I I don't get angry when I'm in a rush and my train inexplicably stops outside the station. Uh, I don't worry that the car accident I've just had is going to wipe out all our money and leave us unable to buy food. I don't worry about that. God is great. Uh, I don't have to try to control my reputation. God is great. I don't have to manipulate people or try to dominate situations. God is great. Uh, He's in charge. I remember um, a few years ago now flying into India a little bit underprepared. I was flying into uh, a Siliguri, that's where it was, Siliguri in West Bengal, northeast India. And as a provincial airport, I'd flown into Mumbai and then on to Siliguri. And I was supposed to be meeting two people there, um, Steve Thomas and Roger Cole. And I'd, my lack of preparation was justified by the fact that they were experienced travelers. They were in charge. It was their trip, really. I was just joining them partway through it, and then we were going on to different places. I arrived at the airport and gradually realized that I hadn't brought with me any, I had no, no idea who we were meeting locally. I didn't, oh, actually, no, I knew the name of the person that we were meeting locally, but I didn't know where he might be, and I didn't have any contact details for that person. But as I came through um, the baggage place, I thought, it's fine, you know, Steve and Roger are here. And um, then I turned my phone on and got a signal and saw a text from them saying that they wouldn't be there that day. Um, which, which was an opportunity for anxiety to be induced. Um, thankfully, uh, another text came through soon afterwards saying, because the, the reason that they wouldn't be there was that their flight had been cancelled uh, from, from South India. They, a text came through soon afterwards saying, don't worry, it's all right. It's come good. We'll be there in an hour. I thought, well, I can wait an hour. That's... That's fine. Whilst I was sat there in the airport, um, there's, a, there's a local guy sat next to me, looks at me and says, um, I don't suppose you're here to see Dawa Singhi, are you? Which is the only thing that I knew I was there to do. That was all I knew. He said, it's just, um, I just thought you might be. And, um, and he's a friend of mine. I've got his mobile number. Shall I give him a call? Uh, these are Christian people who are open to what God might want to say and do with them. And God, God is great. God, I, God is great. I didn't even have opportunity to get anxious. He cared for me. And those kinds of experiences in life just help us to see something that's true 
It's not a rat in a sort of out, it's not a completely out there experience. It's a to be expected experience because God is great. He is powerful and in control. And that means practically that I can sleep soundly. I wonder whether we might want to pray this morning for people who don't sleep soundly, that God would help you to live out in practice the faith that you confess when you sing of him being King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I can sleep soundly knowing that I'm not even in charge of whether I'll wake up in the morning. Jesus is. Jesus is greater than all the things that we fear. The Bible doesn't teach us that we'll never face sickness or death or confusion or chaos, but that we needn't be afraid because God is in control. So in John chapter 6, there's this lovely turn of phrase. Verse 21, it says, after Jesus had said, it's I, don't be afraid, it said, then they were willing to take him into the boat. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And the question I want to ask us all this morning is uh, this one here. Uh, <laughs> somebody clicked me on. Well, the question is, uh, do, thank you, do you want him in your boat? This Jesus, who is good and who is great, do you want him in your boat? I think we're going to have an opportunity to, uh, a bit of space, uh, to think about that question and process the fact that that means some practical things. It, it may mean letting go of your determination to dominate a situation at work. It may mean resolving not to manipulate people through your emotional way of speaking. It may mean seeking prayer that you would sleep soundly and be free from anxiety. It may be Trusting God with your finances, it may be letting go of a relationship that has become an addiction to you and a substitute for writing it. All kinds of things. There's just a few. I'm going to pray that God would come and just bring to mind for each one of us the specific things that He is inviting us to and say, You don't you don't have to live that way. You get to live this better way. So, Lord, help us, I pray. Thank you that you are good and you're great. And thank you that we have learned to confess those truths. And, Lord, you know that we want to live in the good of those truths as well. Thank you that our spiritual growth, our sanctification, is not something we achieve by our hard work. But our work is to trust you. It's by faith that we're saved. And it's by faith that we're sanctified. Thank you. I pray that you would come now and you would gift us with faith. And that that faith would get specific and concrete as you show us specific things that you're inviting us to do differently so that we might live according to the faith that we confess. Lord, for those for whom the choices that you bring to mind this morning are more radical, more significant. Some big choices, I'm sure, in the mix here this morning. Lord, for those of our brothers and sisters especially, we pray for grace to embrace the radical choice 
and to live in your wonderful, abundant life. Amen.